Welcome to the Inspired Teacher's Guide podcast. We are Kim Wilkins and Laura Wooldridge, just two teachers trying to podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us. Our goal is to help you by discussing a variety of topics that will help you as a whole. In the same way, we want to focus on the whole chapter. On this podcast, we will be talking in and inside the classroom. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we've got a special um, podcast for you. But first, we're going to touch on last week's episode. Mm. Remember, last week we interviewed Amy Thomas, and we learned so much from her. She shared tips with us concerning our total health. Man, I was very excited to learn what we learned. Me too. Mm-hmm. Me too. So, so what were some of your top takeaways? Well, first was I I wanted to pick one or two areas. I remember that she said, pick one or two areas and don't try to do all the things. And I've really tried lately to focus on downtime and white space because I'm not good at that. Mm-hmm. When are you in the morning or the night or when or just a little bit in the morning? I have more time in the morning with my new job. Mm-hmm. So I have some time in the morning just to be. And, and then in the evening too, I just, I don't have the TV on. I just, I just chill and think, and I've done a lot of good thinking. You know, I noticed my husband doing this. He'll just be sitting there and I'll say, what are you doing? He'll say, I'm just thinking (laughs) like, really, you're just going to stare straight ahead, but he does that. So I'm giving it a go. You're you're trying out his. Yeah. Yeah. His thinking. I am. Well, I did not remember the advice to just pick one or two things. And so I opened up that guide that she shared with us from Sam. I don't know how to say it. Samza or something like that. I'll link it again if anybody wants to look at it. But I got a little overwhelmed at thinking I need to work on everything. Yeah. And then I remembered. So I am really going to attack the environmental. And that was I think that was the strength of mine this summer, but our com- schedule is completely changing with the boys going in back to school and my schedule changing. So I think the environmental needs in our home will be different. I think so. And so I'm going to attack that. And then just physically, this is something that I really thought I might get together this summer and it didn't happen. You were busy. I was busy, but uh, so I am... In that guide, it, it has you think about what do you need. And Brock and I are going to be good accountability partners. We've been bad accountability partners lately <laughs> on physical. <laughs> We've been pressing snooze, but to hopefully establish a good pattern with that. And then I have a habit tracker that I really used from January to April that I loved. Is and it an app? No, it's it's a it's a, I'll I'll put it in the show notes. It is so cute. You color it in for the habits that you. Okay. Yeah. You got to have that. It's so up any Enneagram three or one's alley. Uh, but I'm going to re- reactivate that. Okay. So, okay. Well, so today we're going to go deeper or in a different direction about mental health. Mm-hmm. And we're going to look at student mental health. It's all about that. And we have a guest. And yes. why don't you introduce her? She's your buddy. All right. So our guest today is another one of my very best friends. I have such smart friends and I'm, I am very thankful for them. Our guest today is Natalie Bland. Welcome to the podcast, Natalie. Hey, Natalie. 
Hello. Thank you guys for having me. We're so excited that you're on. So Natalie is just amazing. She's the best listener I know. Well, you and Amy are the best listeners I know. And I'm guessing it kind of goes along with your job position. Will you share with us a little bit about your work history and who you are and what got you interested in studying mental health? Um, yes. So, um, I am also an LCSW, which is a licensed clinical social worker. Um, I have a master's in social work. And then um, I came out of college and started doing therapy, um, worked as a therapist. And for 10 years, my first 10 years out of school, I worked as a school-based therapist um, in schools. And I worked with ages kindergarten all the way at, well, really pre-K, all the way up through 12th grade. Um, so I did that for 10 years and then I kind of switched gears a little bit. And for the last almost nine years, I have worked, uh, for a mental health inpatient hospital. Um, and I've kind of had several, a few hats with that job. So one of my jobs is marketing uh, marketing for the hospital. Um, and then I also have a role of doing assessments. So if someone needs to go inpatient, uh, for different reasons, then I can kind of assess to see if that is what's needed, if they need inpatient or do they need outpatient or, you know, what do they need in this situation? Um, it's more of like crisis assessments. You know, they're currently in a crisis. So what what would benefit them the most? Um, and then um, lately I've put on a hat of education. So I have been doing more um, continuing ed classes for those who need CEUs for their license or job or um within the mental health field. Um, so I've been doing that. So. And you are the provider of those, right? Yes. Yes. And that's exciting. Yes. It has been fun. Even though I worked in school for 10 years, I don't have any history of teaching. So I love, you know, that's one of the things that, um, I love about Laura is learning from Laura on what works in a group setting and what doesn't and, and learning that teaching side of it for this job. Oh, Kim and I love some professional we development. We do. We do. We can hook you up with PD. Just call us. We'll be there. Oh, man. Well, thank you for agreeing to come to talk to us today. You're going to be talking about this mental health component and focused on the student lens. So I guess we just we just want to learn from you. So just dive in, Natalie. Teach us, oh, smart Teach one. Teach us, Yes. <laughs> So um, one of the things that I did this summer is I went through a course called um, Mental Health First Aid, um, and it is kind of making some um, like headlines and it's in the news. I don't know if you guys noticed that um, there was some SEC, I think it was uh, Ole Miss or Mississippi State, like they all their coaches went through the, this program for the football players, which I think is awesome because I think the more that we talk about mental health, the better. Um, so um and I think that everybody should have this. And the idea, the title of it is Mental Health First Aid. And, you know, we do uh, like basic first aid, you know, learning how to take care of like physical needs. So people will do that. But this is mental health first aid. What do you do if you run into someone who's having um, mental health issues or, you know, just not feeling their best? And we all go through those moments. We all have days where we just don't feel our best and we're not making the best choices and we're not doing the best thing. Um, and so this course really is just kind of teaching um, individuals like what to do whenever you encounter something like this. So in schools, you're dealing with this every day. You cannot even deny as a teacher that you're not dealing with some mental health issues. Typically in the younger grades, in your elementary grades, it might be more aggression that you're um, seeing in the classroom. Um, but then as you get older, you might run into more of the, 
depression, um, anxiety, um, and symptoms along those lines. So um, you're kind of thrown into that as a teacher and not like, what are you supposed to do? Well, you use your resources is the first thing. Every building has a school counselor or someone in their building that um, that can be a resource for them. Um, but one of the things I was just going to talk about today is under this um, mental health first aid um, program, they have a five-step action plan that they go, um, that they use, that they want people to know to kind of help them through uh, a situation that might arise. So actually equipping the classroom teacher with something to do. Yes. That is wonderful. Yes, because we don't really, we aren't trained to do that. Mm-hmm. We're not counselors. And so we haven't had that, that opportunity to study in depth how to help kids. And it seems to me, I've been doing this a long time, that we're seeing more kids with more issues, a lot of anxiety, so much anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think we need to know how to best um, reach out to them and help them. And we don't know. Well, how to do- yes. And I agree. And, you know, when you said that about anxiety, it always makes me think about the younger kids. Um, typically, like in your younger kids, like six, seven, eight, maybe even up to 10, we are giving an ADHD diagnosis to a lot of these kids where it may not be ADHD. It may be anxiety or it may be depression, but at that age, it looks like ADHD. So I just want to kind of throw that out there as well. That is so interesting that you said that. I, I, today at school, I had a conversation about one of my students um, with some other teachers and this child is on medicine for attention deficit And I know her situation, you know, that she's got a lot of anxiety. And I said, you know, I kind of wonder sometimes if it's anxiety instead of ADHD. Mm -hmm. So it really could be that. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. Don't you think that as we grow older, we just learn to, well, sometimes we, we show these, um, I don't know how to say it. We demonstrate Right. Our feelings in a more socially appropriate or oh, yeah. like pure. Pro- I was thinking our friend Abri, we, uh, she's a young child, and we were both climbing a mountain the other day, like literally climbing a mountain that I did not realize I was getting myself into <laughs> as I was doing it. She was crying because she was so scared. And all I kept thinking is, that is exactly what I want to do too. <laughs> However, I am going to, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, like, your your statement about that, thinking that we, we may assume that they have ADHD, but really it's something else, that these younger students may be showing different behaviors when really it's masking mm-hmm. a deeper problem. Is there a way that teachers can, like, is there a check? Is there some way we can know about how to, who to reach out to? Because well, one of the good things is um, that I'll bring up is that you don't have to diagnose as a teacher. So that's yes. great. You don't have to know, is it anxiety or is it ADHD or is it depression or is it trauma? And trauma alone could be a 10 podcast series probably. Yeah. But yeah. Um, the so you don't have to be able to diagnose. But ideally, what's great is to just take as much information as possible. Like, what are you noticing? And we'll kind of get into some of this. But what are you noticing? What what are they saying? And just kind of make notes and keep a, a folder of notes. And if mm-hmm. it 
if you have a child that's really disrupting the classroom, you're going to get help quicker, obviously, because you're like, I cannot teach somebody. Um, You know, when I was school based those 10 years, I mean, we were getting calls on the first day of school. So we knew which kids needed that. But there are some kids that you just notice they come in and they're in maybe it's February and they're not acting themselves. They you had one child all the way up until February and then something happened and but you don't know what happened. They're not, no one's told you what happened, but you're noticing a change. You know, maybe they are not um, bathing as frequently. Maybe they um, are not, maybe they're not brushing their hair. Uh, Maybe they're just not talking as much, not raising their hand as much, but you're noticing a difference. So there's nothing that you can really report on that necessarily to anyone else, but it's something that you might just want to kind of take notes just as, you know, if it gets, uh, worse. And so that's usually what I kind of tell teachers. It's just kind of make jot little notes down on what you're noticing. And you got to know your kids. Yeah. You do have so, to know your kids. Yes. You do. And that's why it's easier to notice that in February than in yeah. August. Right. right. You can see a difference in patterns. Mm-hmm. I just think almost every episode we are talking about connection and the relationship. Mm-hmm. And when we do see um, changes, that is a great time to really think we might need to up our connection points mm-hmm. during the day. Mm-hmm. Okay, Natalie, what am I going to do when I don't know what to do? <laughs> when when I really need to text you and say, figure this out for me, but I can't, what will I do? Right. So um, one thing about the mental health first aid training, it's really kind of focused on ages 12 to 17. So it might be a little bit more for your high school, junior high, high school teachers, but it's not you can use it for the younger kids. I mean, you can use, these are just some basic skills that you might want to practice. Um, So that can be used at all ages. So we have a five-step action plan. um, We have an acronym and the word that we're going to use is algae. So this is not linear, but you're looking at A-L-G-E-E, algae. And if you want to change that around so it's easy to remember, you can do that. Or if you want to stick with algae, if you want to put like a little sticky note on your desk, you can do that. Um, Some people have changed it around. Like you can take algae and make the word eagle. So like, let's say if your mascot's eagle, you can go with eagle. Just, it's just something easy to remember. And we're going to kind of talk about each of these um, steps. So the first one, if we stick with algae, the first one is A. um, And A stands for approach. Um, and so it's going to be your approach whenever you, um, are assessing the kids and I'm using the word assessing, um, lightly because we're not doing a full, um, assessment, but we're just kind of looking at, you know, we're assessing how do they look? Um, what is their demeanor? What are their actions? Um, are they more negative? You're just assessing the situation. Did they come in and throw chairs in the classroom today? Did they flip over desks? Did they come in and sit in the back corner and put their hoodie over their um, head? You know, all of, you know, all of these things that could be different. But we're just kind of assessing the situation. Um, and with that, you may, and also kind of, you know, talking about that connection with the student. So if you don't have a connection with that student and you walk back in the back corner and that kid has the hoodie over their head and they have their head on their desk and you go up to Johnny and you say, hey, what's going on? What's wrong with you? Johnny may not want to talk to you. Johnny doesn't have a connection. Why does Johnny trust that you're going to help him or, you know, um, Why are you going to do anything? So without that connection, you're probably not going to get far, but that's okay. I mean, it's nearly impossible, especially at the high school level, to have a connection with every one of your students. I mean, I think it's worth trying, but it's going to be hard to have um, that connection with all of your students. But just kind of 
just kind of noticing those things and say, okay, and then kind of walking away from Johnny. Now, if Johnny's throwing chairs or throwing desks, obviously you have to call for backup and get some help. But at that moment, um, if Johnny's just kind of keeping to himself, then you just kind of back off and let Johnny do his thing. But um, but just noticing um, and assessing the situation. Um, you might even when you do go up to Johnny, you might use I statements. You know, I've noticed. Um, I'm wondering um, just making it kind of about you and not about Johnny, but not being too aggressive in your approach. Like I'm wondering if, um, anything happened today before you got to class, or I'm noticing that you didn't come in today like you normally do. Um, I'm worried that you, that something could be wrong. So just kind of using those I statements, making it instead of you and basically pointing those fingers, like what did, you know, you came in here in a bat with a bad attitude. You don't look like yourself, but changing it to the I statements. That's a good approach to use all the time, really. When you're, yeah. when you're confronting an issue, I think. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. I'll try that tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because when you say you, well, I'm already, I'm already got my hat, whatever it's called, hackles, hackles up. I'm already nervous about what you're going to tell me about me. If you're talking about you, you go on and talk about you. I'm fine with that. But when you're talking about me, that's uncomfortable. And I think a lot of anybody, not just students, but will either pull into that turtle shell or start reacting negatively when it's you, you, you. That is great actionable advice, Natalie. Yes, it is. Okay. You, you've talked about this before in just like personal conversations, but will you talk about how far should we go? Like, a, like maybe trying to get them to share with their feelings or something like, can you speak upon that? Yeah, you don't want to push them too far because maybe they're right there on the edge and you don't want to be the reason that they fall over the edge. <laughs> and so um, you, you know, you offer the I'm noticing or the I statements, one or two I statements, you don't have to go too far. Um, and as long as that person is calm, then just move on with your day, start teaching your class, finish that class. And then maybe um, at the end of class, after you've done your, um, the bell's about to ring, you, you finish everything, you might walk back up to him and say, or back up to that student and say, you know, if there's anything that you want to talk about, I'm here. You can come talk to me. Mm -hmm. Or if you need, um, need to help you get to the counselor's office, I can do that for you as well, but offer kind of a somewhat of a solution. Um, because if they're not ready to talk, they're just not ready to talk. They're they're Mm -hmm. not ready to share anything, Mm -hmm. but they know you have made it known. I've noticed something and this is what we can do. So you notice. And then at that point, if they're not willing to share anything, there's not really anything that you can do at that point. Mm. without pushing too much yeah very good stuff okay okay so let's say that they do start opening up and talking to you and they do start sharing stuff obviously there's a time and a place you don't have to shut down your classroom at that time to allow the student to talk but you might say to them hey I think this is great and I would love to hear what you have to say when we finish today I'll set some some time aside for you and we can kind of talk about these things. Um, so that lets them know that the, an opportunity is coming because, you know, you do have your overshares too. We talked about this person who doesn't want to share anything, mm-hmm. but you know, you have some of those students that want to tell you everything that's happened from the day they were born until now. And, um, and so you kind of have to manage that as well. So, yeah. but letting that person know, Hey, 
we, um, I'm going to set some time for you. I have this amount of time, um, and letting them know that that's coming up. But, um, so when you do that, listening non-judge, non-judgmentally is very important. Um, and I really want to spend a lot of time on that or some time on that today, because I think we forget it. So we have some teachers have so many things they have to do during the day, um, and they have a lot to fit in. So if someone comes to you and wants to share something and you're sitting there on your computer and you have your back to them, um, and they're trying to share something, maybe that could be important information. That's not, you're not listening. You're not using good listening skills with that. Mm -hmm. So, um, so if you have set aside a time and you told this student, like I have at this time that we can talk and you've set that time for them, then you want to be engaged with what they, um, are saying. So you want to be engaged with them. So you want to face them. You want to look at them. You want to try to make eye contact with them. Now, some of that can be cultural. You know, some cultures don't want you to make eye contact. But if it's a student that you think would need to make eye contact, you want to make eye contact with them, face them. Um, Verbal skills versus nonverbal skills. Verbal skills could be, you know, repeating back something that they said to you so that they know that you're listening. Um, So if they say something along the lines of... um, you know, uh, my mom and I got in a fight this morning. It was a really rough morning. She screamed at me all the way to school. Um, my dad didn't come home last night. And then so you just, you know, kind of when they get to that point, you say, oh, so that was a tough morning this morning, huh? It sounds like a lot happened in the car this morning. You're just kind of repeating back what they mm-hmm. said, and then they know that you're listening to them. So that is one um one way to have good non-judgment listening. Um, And then those non-verbals of shaking your head or even, uh uh-huh, you know, or, um, you know, just that whole body language engaged with them. Another thing I was going to say about the non-judgmental part, you know, especially if you have junior high and high school kids, I think they feel very judged all the time, either Mm -hmm. from their peers or from, I mean, they pro- they don't always feel like they're making the best choices. And maybe they haven't even been trained how to make good choices. Or, you know, maybe they just make poor choices in general. And not every junior high and high school kid does make poor choices. But some of them just feel a lot of pressure. And so that whole non-judgmental, like, it's okay that you're having these thoughts. It's okay that these things have happened. You know, it's okay to share these things. And it, you know, that can mean a lot to someone when they feel like they're constantly getting in trouble for a thought or an action that they have. Mm-hmm. This is, I may just be speaking for myself, but so many times as a teacher and as a parent, I always want to advise when maybe it's just better for me to listen. Yes. So you don't, part of that, uh, very good, Laura, <laughs> because part of that is that we get into a preachy mode. And we want to preach to them and tell them like all the things that they need to do or, you know, should do. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is a good time to ring up my should, don't should on yourself moment. (laughs) I quoted you on that. (laughs) I even use that this week. Now don't should on yourself. (laughs) Um, So you don't want to should on yourself. Um, But kids should on others. Yeah. 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 Should on anyone else either. Should should be taking out of your vocabulary. Don't yes. use it. Um, it's all, it's not a good word. Um, but it's, anyway, that can be tough for kids. Um, and so really all they want someone to do is to listen to them. And mm-hmm. they want to li- they want to be able to share either what they're thinking or, or their story. And they just want to be able to talk to someone. 
Because sometimes it just helps to get it out. Yes. Just to get it out. Yes. And many times they end up voicing their own solution or yes, idea. Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot better than me as seventh period math teacher telling them what shit they should do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. So the L for in algae is listen, listening non-judgmentally. Um, the G. Anything that you would encourage us not, I mean, being non-judgmental, we, we are in this role as a teacher. We've got so many more years than they have. We have so much more experience. And so many times it is hard to, to not judge a student's decision. So do you have any other tips for us to? Well, one thing I can say is that silence is a superpower. So sometimes not saying anything at all can be your superpower. Uh, It can be because you're not, you know, you're listening. Your face is showing that you're listening um, and you don't have to preach to them. You don't have to give advice. You don't have to do anything. You're just letting them. So sometimes just that silence, using silence is a superpower. And that can be hard for a teacher because you're not told to be, you know, you have things to say and things to teach. Um, and, but there are times that, you know, you kind of have to stay in your lane and know, you know, like, okay, this is probably more than I can handle, but right now what this child needs is for me to listen. And that's what I'm I'm going to be quiet and I'm going to listen. And then I will, I will pass this on to a person who can help, you know, with our next step. Yes. Yes. Finding, finding a resource who can jump in and take the, take the, situation over because we are not equipped yes we're just not equipped that's not that's not what we do I just really think this could be powerful in parenting too marriage friendships yes oh you're you're so good at this well thank you Laura um but I do um you learn so much information I was actually um one day last week on a home visit and the wife was this you know this is very um stereotypical, I guess. That's not always true, but the wife was just talking nonstop. And then I had something to ask the husband and she was like, oh, he hardly ever talks. He's so quiet, you know? And (laughs) uh, he said, well, I've just learned you learn so much more when you're quiet and you listen. (laughs) And so I don't know. It just kind of stuck my house. (laughs) Did you come to my house? You just described it. I thought I had my house. (laughs) So that is what happens here too. The wife in this house, myself, talks a whole lot more than my husband. So, and what's interesting is we have two children, a daughter and a son, and the daughter is very much like me and our little boy Jude is just like his dad. So. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Um, That listening can bring such insight and, and power, even when we feel powerless in the classroom, thinking, I don't know what to do. To help a child, I think if we slow down and listen, it might come I to us. I think so too. So, and most people in there, you've already kind of mentioned this, Laura, but a lot of times in therapy, you kind of solve your own issues. You know, if you have a therapist telling you what to do, you're kind of missing the point. Like it's about guiding you to where you need to be. Um, and so I think we just can't overstate it enough, like just letting that person kind of speak out. Okay, so our next step in the action plan is G, which is give reassurance. So this is basically where you're going to give hope 
but with facts. So you don't want to say something you can't promise. You don't want to say something that can't be true. So you don't want to say, oh, you know, that's not true. That's not going to happen. You know, those, you know, blah, blah, blah. You don't want to say those things. You want to, I mean, you might can say things like, hey, you're not alone. You know, there's people here for you. That's hope. You have hope someone's there for Mm -hmm. you. And it's fact someone's there. Um, But you're still not making a promise you can't follow through with. Um, You can say, um, you don't always have to feel that way, the way you do right now. Um, that you have choices to feel a different way at some point. So you could say something like that. I mean, again, there's hope when that, like I'm not always going to be in this situation. That's been kind of a coping skill of mine. I can remember being very young and having those kind of thoughts. Like today's just a bad day, Natalie. Today's just a bad day. Tomorrow's going to be better. And I've kind of used that as a coping skill in my own life for a long time. Um, Cause we all have bad days and they don't, we don't stay in those bad days there. We, we come out of them eventually. Mm-hmm. So Um, I kind of use that as a coping skill. I'm just was thinking about, you know, maybe a student who is in my fourth grade classroom and knows very few sounds matching to letters. And we might, we might feel that we're encouraging them, but we might be giving false hope if it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, you'll be doing this, you know, and so by the end of the year, or even um, like playing a game out at recess, you know, you'll win next time when their skills are nowhere near. So I like that, making sure that we're reassuring with facts. So we might need to intentionally plan some facts before our conversations. Yeah. (laughs) Have our, our attack plan yeah. laid out. If we yeah. if we know this child is is struggling, you know, on a pattern basis, then I can I can start thinking of my facts before I engage with him or her. It's always better to have a plan for what you're gonna say. <laughs> I'm gonna work on my and just wing it. My yeah. my um factual reassurance statements for my personal children. Mm -hmm. I need to work on that with mine and they're grown. (laughs) One of the things that when you were talking about that, my kids are in first and fourth grade and um, they, their teachers sent something home like, Hey, what works for you at home? Um, kind of sheets and what, how do you reassure your child at home? What will work for us in the classroom? And I really, as a parent, kind of appreciated that because I feel like that's going to cut some weeks off for them with, you know, some of these kids of, you know, like, oh, she said this type of reward works for her kids or this doesn't work or this shuts her child down or, you know, um, you know, being able to have that information up front, I think is good too. Cause you were talking about like knowing ahead of facts ahead of time, you know, sometimes you can get that from the parents ahead of time. <laughs> now I know not always. And I know that we have some um, kids in the school system that you're not going to get any information from the parents, but sometimes that can help just being able to have mm-hmm. that feedback from the parents ahead of time. You've given me some great things to think about. Me Tell too. me more, Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're not through the algae yet. <laughs> no, but we're getting close. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So the net, the next one is our first E. So you're going to um, encourage professional help. So if you kind of get the information that you need um, from the student, then um, your next step is to encourage professional help. So there are um, opportunities or options for that. Um, I always say, you know, check with the school counselor. Um, a lot of schools in, um, 
have contracts or have mental health professionals um, in the school. So you can always check with them as well. Um, if you do not have either one of those, um, you can check with the principal um, who would also probably have some resources for that child. Um, and so letting them get set up with someone um, for the extra professional help. We just need to remember as teachers that we do not have to live on an island. You do not, you are not assigned this class to, to conquer all on your own. I think that's important because I think we really need to push that out to teachers because they say, I hear teachers say this, I have to be mom, dad, counselor, teacher. No, you nurse. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're the teacher, and then you're going to reach out to the other people mm-hmm. who have specific you. skills for handling those issues. That mm-hmm. is not my skill, mm-hmm. but I know people. Yeah. <laughs> and I can That's find people. That you said that, Kim, and I think even teachers, I think everyone can benefit from that Um advice because, you know, we don't have to wear all the hats and hold all that. And sometimes if a student tells you some really heavy stuff, that's heavy. That is really heavy. But when you have given that information to someone who can help that student, you've done your job and you Mm -hmm. don't have to carry that anymore. You have done your job of getting that um, student the help that they need, or at least getting on the path that they need. So Mm -hmm. you were that gatekeeper. You might've been the person that came, that they came to, to share that information, but you, you knew you knew your resources and you were able to get that student what they needed. And so I think that that is, and, and you don't have to carry that anymore. You don't, you mm. know, you can choose to let that go. You know what you know, but you can choose to let it go. And really it's not, I'm um, part of that wellness wheel is probably like taking care of yourself. And so if you mm-hmm. choose to hold on to all these pieces, that's yeah. not helping you on your wellness wheel. No, it isn't. No, it won't. <laughs> no. I think we do. You know, if I have a student who speaks another language and they come to my class, I'm obviously asking for help from my ELL coordinator or, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a student who maybe is on the spectrum, then I'm calling Kristen to help me. But I think when it comes to the mental health component, when it's not a huge deal that we may just think I'll take care of this on my own when we, when we can have some help. I think so too. We choose to wear all those hats. We say we have to, we don't, we choose to, and we've got to stop that. We can share some hats with some people. We can, because we are, I think that's the thing too, is we have to remember we are not equipped. That's not, that's not my specialty. I can teach you to read. I can do that. That's about, that's about where it ends. And I can, I can help you a little bit. Yes. And and I'll help you. And I'm here for you and Mm -hmm. I will care about you, but I, there's somebody else that can can help you better. Yeah. 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 So if a teacher sees a student, senses that a student needs professional help, what's the appropriate protocol that this teacher should follow? I think that um, you can check with your school um, and see what the resources are within your school. But I think definitely going to the school counselor is a a great first um, place to start when it comes to mental health. Um, I think that that's a great idea Um, or your principal um, and just kind of seeing and they can get the student in the right track. They can start that process, the mental health track. What about uh, communication with parents? I think that if you have a great relationship with the parents, then you are more than welcome to reach out to them and let them know what has happened or what's been going on. 
<clears throat> but if you don't, then just, you know, leave that up to the school. To the others. To do that. Okay. Sounds good. Should we use our I statements with the parents? Yes. <laughs> we are so using I statements with everybody, Laura. All right. I am thankful for this information. <laughs> I am as well. Oh, man. Um, I think that you, like, so typical I statement is I feel you can do like I, well, this is like if um, I'm really going off track here for a second, but if you want like marriage counseling, this is one of the things they teach you, you know, I feel sad when you sit on the couch and don't help get the kids ready for bed or whatever, you know, and then that's not supposed to be as, um, you know, it's not supposed to start fights. Yeah, not as a brace. Not you. It's not yes. it, again, it's not like you're always sitting on the couch, whatever. It's okay, so do it again. I feel sad. I when, feel blank when you I, blank. When you blank. Okay. And so we can use, you know, maybe that with parents of saying, I no, no, no. I wouldn't use it as parents, but I I would use my I statement as parents. I've noticed this about the child, not your child is always talking and never stops one second. Yeah. I have noticed blank. Yeah. So I did kind of take us on a little rabbit trail there. And uh, so you don't really have to do your feeling statements with your students or your parents. But, you know, if you want to use it in your own personal lives, it's a great one with friends or relatives or, you know, personal relationships. Or your children, your own personal children. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel sad when you don't help me clean up the kitchen after supper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes me feel like you, you don't care about our time together. I don't know. <laughs> I, just, I just came up with that. My kids are grown. So then our last E in the algae is um, going to be encourage self-help. Um So we've kind of talked about that, but I'm going to kind of take it a little bit different. Um, So sometimes if someone has a major mental health crisis, like maybe they're having suicidal thoughts or maybe they are um, really highly anxious that it, they don't even want to walk out in the hallway, you know, so those are, that's one level. But what if they say something along the lines of, you know, I just haven't been sleeping well lately Um, or, you know, maybe even, um, I had a fight with my boyfriend or my girlfriend and I broke up, but they're not in a point of where they need like immediate help. You have the ability to talk about like self-help strategies, things that you would do for yourself, but you can talk to them about, you know, spending time with family members, spending time with friends, like what are ways and encourage them to give feedback, but what are ways that you would identify as self-help? Um, maybe doing a yoga class, if there's something that they can get to and that they would be interested in, um, or what are your hobbies? What are some things that you enjoy doing? But you have that ability to kind of share that with them of like, Hey, I have noticed that I really start feeling better when I, um, go to my yoga class three times a week. Or when I go for a walk, me personally, I have noticed that when I go for a walk three or four times a week, it really helps, um, clear my mind. It helps me think a little bit. Um, 
you know, exercising. What about journaling? Um, sometimes if you just write your feelings down or write out what's going and, and you have a journal, that's a great way to um, express some thoughts that you're having and kind of help you identify how you're feeling and what's going on. So, um, you know, just kind of expressing different ways to um, for them to self-help. Because sometimes, you know, we that's why as adults, we're constantly hearing about self-help and constantly hearing about how to take care of ourselves because I'm not sure we learned how to do that as children and in um, adolescents. And we can we can play that role now in teaching them. I try to work with my daughter. Um, she's nine. And I even talk to her about these things like, hey, let's go for a bike ride or let's do some yoga or practicing sleep habits. Um, you know, we go to bed at this time and we try to get this many hours of sleep because it's good for us. It helps us feel better. You know, I'm trying to teach her those things because I do think she's going to deal with anxiety as she gets older. And I think, well, that's my role as a parent to kind of start instilling some of these help, self-help strategies for her. And, and you can really- play that role as a teacher. And open their eyes to maybe some things that they they hadn't thought about before. They haven't thought about and mm-hmm. maybe that might interest them mm-hmm. and would be so good for them. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. And, you know, and I, relationships are so important. And if a child is in, you know, maybe a home where they don't have good relationships, you can always even recommend like faith-based organizations like youth groups or if there are local boys clubs, girls clubs that they can get involved in somewhere where they can develop relationships even outside of school. Mm-hmm. Maybe th- and maybe prompting them and saying, who, who do you know that might be good for you to talk to or, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. I think that would be good for the students to think about who who could help you in this situation. Mm-hmm. And and, <laughs> um, my daughter is in fourth grade. So in her building, fourth and fifth grade, I was really excited to hear this. They were talking about starting like a crochet club or a knitting club, which is not something that you normally do at that age. But I thought, how exciting. I mean, doing anything that you can do with your hands like that is really good for your mental health too. Um you know, both of my kids, when they started kindergarten, and I'm sure they teach you guys this at school because it seems like a lot of classrooms do it, but they have the Play-Doh sitting on the desk for them to come work with their hands. So if you can get, like, even if you had a child that is um, a younger kid who is starting to have a meltdown, you know, giving them something to manipulate with their hands, a lot of times can calm them down enough to where you can have conversations with them. Um, And so I think the idea of having a knitting club in fourth and fifth grade is awesome. You know, I think that that's great for them. And that's teaching them a skill that they can use a lifetime to kind of help calm their brains. Mm -hmm. You know, that's interesting. My, My grandchildren live in Oklahoma City and at their school, they have a knitting club. And my grand, uh, the fourth grader, he was fourth grade last year. He did it. He loved it. Yeah. Luke and Lawson are both knitters. They learned oh, they in did? middle school. Yeah. I, I can share the kit with you that Luke got for Christmas one year. Yeah. I think that's great. Yes, I would love for you to show that with me. We'll kind of see how it goes um, at school to see if she ends up liking it. Because I'm thinking mm-hmm. that'll be great, like Christmas presents if she does end up liking it. But I always encourage parents and teachers to find something that kids can do with their hands. Oh, I think having some puzzles in your room, that Mm -hmm. maybe that would be good. Just something that was slow and. Yeah. Somebody I taught with once, I don't remember who it was, had a table at the back and they always had one of those big puzzles going. And when kids would 
need some time, they could go back and work that puzzle. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, you know, at home, like getting your kids to cook with you, like even like cutting up vegetables or put, you know, just that couple of things like that relationship builder and um, the fact that you're doing stuff with your hands or, you know, gardening mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And maybe we could take that on even in, as a teacher to have students help us doing things, you know, mm-hmm. as, while we're waiting 30 minutes for the late bus to come, yeah. <laughs> you can help me do these things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You oh, can I think that's great having, you know, those options in there. And I think that you would be surprised at how well it does help mm-hmm. with their mental health. Yeah, I think so too. I think having responsibilities and chores is so important for children. Sure. It gives them a sense of accomplishment mm-hmm. and ownership and ownership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Natalie, listeners, you don't know this, but Natalie and I have talked a lot about mindfulness. We listened to a podcast. What's his name? Dan? Dan Harris? 10% Happier? Yes. Yes. Okay. Dan Harris. We li- Dan Harris. We listened to a podcast and it was all about mindfulness. And that is a big topic that comes up when mental health is discussed. Would you give us just a little commercial for mindfulness and tell us what does that look like and how could it be beneficial? Yeah. Maybe how we could do it in the classroom? Yes. Um, I'm going to kind of, so I have also done a, um, a one hour continuing ed class on the science of happiness. And a a lot of that presentation is off of a documentary called Happy, just H-A-P-P-Y. And you can find it pretty much on anything, any streaming device. I think even um, you can maybe rent it off YouTube for $2. I think I watched it either on Amazon Prime or Netflix, but it's called Happy. And in that documentary, at the end of it, they talk about mindfulness. They do a CAT scan of the brain and show what it looks like before you do mindfulness and the meditation and then what it looks like after. And there is lots of um, proof and evidence to show how much the mindfulness affects your brain in a positive way. So I would love to kind of, um, I wish they would do it to me. I wish I could be in part of these studies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, what does my brain look like? What is it doing? Um, so I, um, so in mindfulness can be, I mean, there's different types of meditation in general, but mindfulness is typically, I even use this with my kids and you might can even use it in the classroom. This is one way that I kind of use it with my kids is, um, part of mindfulness can also be, um, like gratefulness, things that you're grateful for and focusing on the good in your life. And so one of my kids, and I'm not going to name names, but has a harder time finding the good in their life. And we really started practicing this at home. So I'll say, Hey, how, you know, how was your day? Uh, bad. It was bad. Um, every day is bad. (laughs) So, um, so now I say, tell me three things that you liked about today. And so they have to, he, they have to focus on what was good about the day. Mm -hmm. Um, and he has gotten to the point where now, cause we do this at bedtime. And so now he gets to the point where he's like, mom, you tell me five things about your day that you like. Oh, that's because that takes longer to go to bed. So it used to be three, but now we're on five and I go with it. But he says, you know, he'll say, Hey, tell me he'll get, you know, sometimes I say, well, you have to tell me yours first. Um, so we kind of take turns, but we have to pick five things that we liked about the day and focus on that. And that's a form of mindfulness. Just, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. people think that you have to take so much time 
to do it and you don't. Um, and it can be just a, a meditation of walking. And it is, if you're going on a walk by yourself, what are you noticing? Do you feel the breeze on you? Do you hear the trees? Do you hear cars in the distance? Um, can you feel, what is what do your feet feel like as they're walking on the pavement? So it's just focusing on every feeling that you have um, and being in the moment, completely in the moment. You're not thinking about the future. You're not thinking about the past. You're just thinking about the moment. And the best way to do that is to think about what, you know, what you're feeling, seeing your senses. What are you hearing, seeing, feeling? Uh, well, elementary teachers, we could do that as we're going back into the room from the playground. Mm-hmm. That would be a little calming activity. It would be. That's a great idea. We could do anything in the classroom too, couldn't we? What are you feeling? What are you seeing? What are you? So even yeah. if you're a junior high or high school teacher, mm-hmm. you can do that. Yeah. And yeah, I, field one class, I got to do half the semester on social emotional learning. And I began many classes with just some breath work, different tools, picture a red light and a green light flashing in and out, getting, Mm -hmm. you know, stronger and stronger and weaker and, and, and putting your breath to that. And some of my students, I could tell that they were like, oh, good grief, Laura Wooldridge, come on, teach us. But I would try to remind them we need you, you. We're trying to leave this behind and and get focused here. So uh, um, one of the talking about that as well. So there is um, an author named Sissy Goff. Sissy is S I S S Y G O F F Goff. And I have bought. She has a book called Raising Worry Free Girls, um, which I have purchased and read, and I really. Um, think that it's a great book. But one of the things that she, she talks about different strategies to use for girls um, who are, who are anxious. And in her book, she talks about like third, fourth grade being a really big year that a lot of that anxiety comes out for the girls. But talking about the breath work, one of her strategies is like to like make a, maybe on your um, leg or somewhere on your body, but make a, a square And like four dots that might be a square or whatever shape you want it to be. But like take your finger on your arm or your leg. And as you're making that line across the top of the square, you're breathing in. And then as you go down the square, you're breathing out. And then across, breathing in and back up, breathing out. That's good. And so a couple of things. There's the, the texture of that because it's on your body. But then it's also focusing on your breathing. And it's calming that nervous system basically I like that physical cue because that too. Might, the red green thing might be harder for smaller students to do that might help us practice the pause <laughs> we learned about practicing the pause <laughs> and that might help us we must draw a square before we respond <laughs> and then we're calming ourselves down oh I um, love that that's really good and Natalie got me on to following Sissy Goff and I cannot recommend following her on Instagram. Is she on Facebook too? I have all these notes here. Follow her on um, Instagram. I'm not sure if she's on Facebook or not. She's based out of Nashville um, and she has a practice there um, with another man. And I can't think of his name right now, but it's uh, raising uh, boys and girls. Laura, I'm going blank on there. Uh, post so many times she tags that man or 
So he kind of focuses on the boys and she focuses on the girls. Um, But I just feel like they have really good information. Another thing that I was just thinking of that I really wish all teachers would uh, read is um, the book by Oprah. um, And it's called What Happened to You. Um, Harry, the one she did with Prince Harry. No, it is. Um, she. It, the name of the title of the book is "What Happened to You," and it is. She wrote it with a psychiatrist, um, and his one. name is Bruce Perry. Okay. Um, and I and I because I do like Oprah, but um, I like to listen to the audiobook because she, her, and Bruce narrate, narrated the book, and it's like they're having a conversation through mm-hmm. the whole book. But one of the reasons why I feel like teachers should, um, oh, I just used that bad word, should word. One of the reasons why I recommend teachers to listen to it is that it talks a lot about trauma and that kids' behaviors in the classroom are most likely about what happened to you. So changing that narrative to what's wrong with you, to what happened to you, can really change your focus on helping a a student in the classroom. So um, they talk about in the book about, you know, these behaviors and how you can, in the classroom, you know, things that you can do to kind of help these kids who have gone through some trauma. And trauma trauma is such a wide range of events that can happen. So things that might not be traumatic to us can be traumatic to someone else. So, um, you know, one example I give of that is a couple of years ago, I fell and broke my ankle. Well, we, I've lived a great life. My children have lived a great life. That was traumatic for us because they were so used to mom doing everything for them. And then we had to start relying on other people to do things for us. And so for those few weeks, it was just a shift in our everyday life. And there was a noticeable difference in my kids for a few, you know, weeks or months. Um, because that was kind of a traumatic event for us. Now, obviously, there are kids who go through so much worse, and we know that. And they've had a lot of severe trauma that's happened to them, and that is affecting their behavior. Um, and so, anyway, I do. Um, I've recommended this book to a couple. Um, my daughter has had two teachers who were foster parents um, and who were also her teacher. And I think it's, I've recommended it to both of them, especially if you're going to foster children. Um, they're they have talked about if a child just goes into foster care for whatever the reason, they automatically giving them a PTSD diagnosis, like post-traumatic stress, because the idea of just going into foster care can be a traumatic event. Wow. So um, anyone who fosters or has foster children in their classroom, um, I really recommend the book. Mm-hmm. Oh, I will. I've I will, got it down. I will read it. We can, we can debrief. Do you have any recommendations for us for how we can support mental health as a whole instead of just targeting on individuals, but in our classroom, in our whole group lessons, or how we address students as a whole? Do you have any recommendations for us for that? Well, one of the things that we were just now talking about that I kind of think it could even be beneficial is if you incorporated this mindfulness in your classroom every day. So like, what if you spent the first minute of class doing something of, you know, let's turn the lights down low or, you know, like, what are we in focusing on either quietness and in practicing, like just listening to your breath, because those are skills that they can use. Like if you get anxious or if you get, um, I mean, so when you practice mindfulness is when you're calm. 
so that you can you can use that when things are not going well. So if you're practicing that on a daily basis, it's like you're you're training your brain on how to handle situations as they come up. So if you're putting that in your classroom of if one day, if you just want to practice everybody for one minute being really quiet, this is also a great way to kind of get everybody focused (laughs) in the classroom. But for one minute, you just focus on your breath and you're going to have to train them because you know that five of the, your 25 kids are going to be like, they're going to have something to say. Oh, Miss Laura, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, nope. For this one minute, I want you to just, just right. focus on your breath. Just focus on this. Just listen to the sounds of the classroom. No one talks. No one, you know, you might close your eyes. Teach them to sit up tall in their de- or in their chairs, put their hands on their lap. And all they're doing is nothing. They're taking, they're not thinking about anything. So you could do that for one minute in your classroom. And it's a great way to start the class or start the day of um, getting everybody reset. But they may not know it, but that truly is helping them when the need arises um, and giving them some skills that they could use. So I think as teachers, we can be, we can make sure that we're being explicit about, we just had a little bit of fun here, you know, doing that activity or that was challenging, wasn't it? And then teaching them the transfer of it. This is something you could do when you feel blank, blank, blank or Mm -hmm. whatever, making sure that we're explicit. Do you recommend just doing baby bits of teaching about when I feel this, these are some things I could do? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do. Um, I think that that's a great, yes, I do. And, and, and you'll have moments that come up in your class that are great segues into it of how, you know, maybe it's a lesson that you're teaching and it, that might trigger something in your mind and you can just share that with them and, and, um, using those as examples. Or, um, if it's Valentine's day and everyone is sugared up and it's two 30 in the afternoon, you know, like maybe we take that moment and be like, Hey, you know, like, Let's practice this. And this is why we're going to practice this. And this is how you can use this. So when I have a lot of energy, here is something I can do (laughs) other than scream. Right. And run around the classroom. I used finals or it was either midterms or finals as an opportunity this past semester. I really noticed that many of my college students were not handling stress appropriately was you know, chugging coffee and doing all these things. And so I taught them about that stress cycle, which we're going to do on the podcast. They're just trying. I love that seizing on opportunities that are real life and teaching them skills for how to deal Mm -hmm. with it. You know, so maybe we're doing this big math test and we know that you're nervous. I, I I can feel the tension in the room. Here's something you can do to help yourself. I really think I need this because I'm a dyslexia therapist. And the kids I work with are third grade through sixth grade. And they um, they have a lot of stress about reading and spelling and writing. A lot of anxiety, a ton of it. And so I think I'm going to add that to the beginning of my lessons. Mm-hmm. Just you know, we're going we're gonna to take our finger. We're going to make a square and breathe in. And I'm definitely doing that. Yeah. And this is something you can say. Our brains are kind of all wired different. And one of your students may be like, Miss Kim, can I make a flower instead? And you say, you can't make it cheaper on there. Yes. Yes, we know that we will Uh have one. Yeah. 
Oh, Natalie, thank you so much. I know. I learned so much. Yeah. And I love the practicality of your advice. So Mm -hmm. I will just encourage you in your new role as an educator, you're doing a gosh darn good job. So way to teach us. Okay, friends, please share this podcast with others. We would love for you to rate and review our podcast on your podcast app. Doing that will help others find us. We are excited that our community is growing. We hope that today has helped you in some way. Our goal is to help at least one teacher, help one student, one day, and one time. See you next time. Bye.